Welcome to the Air Power and International Security Podcast, brought to you by the Portsmouth Military Education Team, based at RAF Cranwell in the UK. If you're tuning in to us for the first time, this show brings you episodes on all things relating to air power, international relations, military history and security studies. If you haven't already listened to it, we're marking the launch of Series 2 today with two special episodes that focus on the war in Ukraine. So I'm going to keep this intro brief because this episode is obviously a highly topical and important issue and one that we've wanted to cover for a long time now. The first of these two special episodes looks at the build-up and modernisation of the Russian military to try and contextualise what's going on there. And in this episode, we have on the show our very own Dr Frank Ledwidge, a legal expert, a military intelligence officer and an academic to boot. And he talks us through some of the issues both sides have faced in the air domain over Ukraine and how the two opposing forces have sought to undermine their adversary from the air. So, let's hear from Frank. Okay, Frank, thanks for joining me today to talk about the use of air power in the war in Ukraine thus far. Now, I know you've been following this issue quite closely, and I've featured on various news outlets discussing it, including Good Morning Britain. But more importantly, you've also actually been out in Kiev as a civilian advisor, right? So before we start, is there anything you can tell us about your experiences there? Yes, I was part of a British government um, funded uh, mission uh, to help the Ukrainian government in some respects connected with uh, IHL and human rights, which was extremely interesting. And I also was there in the capacity of being a visiting fellow at one of the think tanks there, which is an East European think tank called Bobsec, and I'm um, still involved in that. So uh, yeah, that, that was it. It was a couple of months during the summer last year, and I took leave of absence from university to do that, and uh, it was extremely interesting and very fruitful. Fantastic stuff. Well done, Frank. Now, if we move on to the air dimension in this conflict, it's probably best to start with that thing that air-minded people often consider the most important aspect of any campaign, which is control of the air. It strikes me that neither side really has any degree of air control, at least in the long-term sense anyway, uh, which is completely at odds with how a NATO force would seek to operate. Did Russian forces start this campaign with any serious attempt to win control of the air? Or did they not see it as a precursor to subsequent land or air operations in the same way that a NATO force would do? Well, you've made some very interesting points. First of all, some of the assumptions that NATO and indeed the UK have had, and we all have had, have been quite subverted by the air campaign in Ukraine. So first of all, they're in a situation, both sides, of mutual air denial. So most of Ukraine is denied to Russian air. So... Uh, neither side has succeeded in uh, in dominating the air in a way that we in the West, as you hinted in your question, would consider a prerequisite for any campaign. And as I think everybody knows, the Russians fail, if they've tried, but let's say they did, failed to conduct properly a suppression and destruction of enemy air defences campaign in a way that NATO at that time would have considered essential before a single soldier stepped over the border. There are assumptions in NATO doctrine that you would gain control of the air before proceeding with any other uh, conventional military operations. And that, of course, arises out of the West's significant emphasis on air power as the primary kinetic arm 
Now, those assumptions, of course, don't work with Russia because that's not Russia's way at all. It never has been. All that notwithstanding, there was an effort, we understand, in the first few days of the campaign, a year ago now, for uh, Russia to, to eliminate or attrit Ukrainian air defences. But the way they did that was very different from how we would do it. And again, subverted expectations that we had of the Russian Air Force. Much of what I'm saying, of course, some of your listeners will have read already from Rusi and various other British and US sources who are far better qualified than I am to talk about these things. But what they suggest is that what we found was that Russia was incapable of mounting complex counter-air operations, or indeed complex air operations more generally. So, for example, over the last 20 years particularly, NATO, and the RAF in particular, whilst um, conducting wars essentially without effective opposition, have exercised the skills necessary to administer a complex air environment involving many, many, many aircraft, enablers, control of the air, strike, I-star, and so forth. For example, over Afghanistan, as anybody who has been there will know, there are multi- always, at any one time, there were multiple layers of air power available to operators. And all this wound up with a system of aerospace battle management that NATO could accomplish with really consummate uh, skill and effectiveness. So I think there's a sort of mirroring effect there that we kind of expected the Russians to be able to do the the same sort of thing, given that they certainly would aspire to be peers of, uh, of NATO. So there was a mirroring expectation, certainly on my part, and I think I wasn't alone in this, if I'm fairly certain that's the case, that, that Russia would do the same. Of course, they didn't. And had, had we been more critical in our assumptions, I think over the last few years, particularly looking at Russian operations over Syria, we might have realised that they don't have the same skills or indeed expectations that we in NATO do. So, for example... We would have noticed in Syria that very rarely did Russia deploy any more than two strike aircraft as a package uh, to accomplish a mission, that very rarely would battle damage assessment effectively be be used. A caveat the fact that very many of their strikes were simply indiscriminate anyway, that's not surprising. We would would have noticed that uh, uh, complex missions almost never took place, and by that I mean missions involving uh, AWACS, in their case, the AN-12, uh, or the Beriev, I should say, uh, uh, mainstay system, very rarely used. Refueling, uh, air-to-air refueling, very rarely used. And close air support, on-call close air support, again, very rarely used. So I think we failed to interrogate that campaign and challenge our own assumptions about what Russia was capable of within that realm of complex air operations. So just to conclude this little piece, if NATO were conducting the C3 for the Russian Air Force prior to the campaign in February last year, we would have used packages of dozens of aircraft to conduct many, many simultaneous strikes. We would have conducted dynamic battle damage assessment, resulting in very quick restrikes if the, if the target wasn't eliminated. We would have ensured that airfields were hit not with one or two missiles as a formality, which is what the Russians did, but dozens. 
completely to wreck them. The Russians didn't do that. And we would have ensured that all the targets were uh, subject to critical analysis before we proceeded. And before any of that, needless to say, we'd have conducted a suppression of enemy air defences and a destruction of enemy air defence campaign. And by we, I mean the US in these cases. Europe has very limited capability for that. But the Russians did pretty much none of that. And of course, finally, and this is, I said, I'll come back to it. The truth is, as we now know, that many of the Russian air crews, in fact, if not most or all of them, were simply unaware of what they were going to do. That's no way to conduct a campaign, giving people 12 hours notice of beginning a war. And that feeds back again up to the strategic mistakes made that there were assumptions made by the Russians that the resistance would be limited and that this would be a walkover. And therefore, there was perceived to be no need to brief uh, the Air Force that they were going to conduct a complex campaign for which they were in any event not really equipped or capable to carry out. That's really interesting there, Frank. Presumably before this conflict, Russia had far superior numbers of aircraft uh, compared to the Ukrainian Air Force. So I guess, is it that training and expertise is essential in this type of complex operation? Numbers help, sure, but if you don't have the training and the expertise, your ability to actually prosecute this type of campaign is severely limited. Yes, that's right. And, and certainly Ukraine had uh, far fewer airframes than Russia. But of course, the dominant instrument and control of the air in this war has nothing to do with aircraft. It's ground-based air defence systems, GBAN, both at the, the high level, it's S-300 uh, for the Ukrainians mostly, and it's S-300, S-400 for the Russians, the uh, various other systems, Pantsir, the medium level, and uh, the lower level with the uh, man pads, various other forms of gun systems. So it's ground-based air defence systems that have dominated the control of the air here. So regardless really of numbers, neither side can afford to uh, enter uh, areas where GBAD dominates. And I'll just make one historical comment here. Since the Second World War, way over 90%, but I would estimate 95% of aircraft shot down in combat have been shot down by ground-based air defence systems. That pattern continues here in in Ukraine. But it's that ground-based air defence system is utterly central in this campaign, with airframes, aircraft being secondary. And again, that's counterintuitive for those of us in the West that talk about aircraft. Now, regardless of Russia's lack of air superiority over the battle zone, they have nevertheless been able to launch a number of fairly significant airstrikes. How much of this has been delivered by air power, or have they been reliant on long-range ballistic missiles? Uh, I guess my question is, has the Russian Air Force been able to use attack aircraft without control of the air? Yes, and it does so using standoff capabilities. Uh, so, so what we're talking about here are the, is, is an entirely separate campaign, effectively, to the one that exists over the battlefield, that sort of tactical piece. Most of the country being denied to Russian aircraft by effective U- Ukrainian air defences. What Russia has defaulted to is a separate campaign, which we would call a strategic air campaign against critical infrastructure. Today, as we speak, it doesn't matter when really, but these things happen every couple of weeks or so. There was an attack on the Viv in Western Ukraine on critical infrastructure, their electrical and otherwise. Regularly, attacks are made on Kiev, uh, which are many of which are defeated. And the answer to your question as to how those are delivered is, uh, they, well, they're delivered in multiple ways. They're delivered by ballistic missiles. They're delivered by long-range ballistic missiles. 
by cruise missiles, many of them, probably most, launched from aircraft, stood off either in Belarus or indeed deep into Russia. Their ranges are fairly significant. And Russia has fired thousands of precision-guided missiles from aircraft outside Ukraine's borders and therefore outside the range of their defence systems. So, yes, those are expressions of air power. And there's also uh, rather fewer cruise missiles have been launched from submarines uh, or indeed uh, frigates from the Black Sea. And then, of course, there are the, actually, I think we'll come back to the, uh, the various drones, so-called kamikaze drones, they're nothing more than guided missiles, really, which uh, initially, during the strategic air campaign, which essentially began in October of 2022, discomfited Ukrainian air defence, but I think now they've got a handle on. So it's a mix of ballistic missiles, which are launched from the ground, cruise missiles, and, of course, the, um, the, the various drone systems, all, all against key political infrastructure. You mentioned these drones, and um, we've heard of Iran supplying these very cheap. And you mentioned that they're used in a kamikaze-style attack. Are these are these swarm drones, or are they just uh, relatively primitive drones that you or I could operate? How much of a challenge do these actually represent? These Iranian drones, not just to Ukraine, but also more broadly, perhaps to NATO forces. Also, are they something that can saturate air defences because of their size and uh, affordability? Well, they're, they're guided in much the same way to the V1 bombs, partly by inertial guidance and partly by GPS. The, the Shahid One Three Six drones, which are an Iranian Delta Wing, about two meters wide. And Meter and a half long or so. They are pre-programmed by targeters. Many of them launched from uh, Crimea, actually, and Iranian crews have assisted. So, according to reports, in training Russian crews, indeed, some Iranian operators were killed in late end of last year. So, those have are they swarm drones? I, I don't think so. I think swarm drones are the kind of thing you would see in uh, in the civilian context in the New Year celebrations in London. Uh, often extremely impressive uh, displays of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence, pre-programming, what have you. I think those are swarm drones. We haven't seen many of those yet. But, but what we have seen, to, to address your point, is large numbers of them. So in the early days of the strategic campaign, attacks on, on infrastructure in key cities would, might involve 150 or so of these ballistic missiles or cruise missiles. Increasingly, the Ukrainians got wise to how to deal with them. And whilst the value, by just touch on this value, I think it's important to realise that, yes, these are relatively cheap guided missiles. Their value isn't so much how much they cost, but the damage they can do. So a $20,000 drone smashes into a, a transformer, for, which will cost you one or two million dollars to fix, and that's the value you're defending. And the problem the Ukrainians had in the early days, I think they've got around this now, is that they were finding they were using valuable S-300 missiles, which is their predominant air defence system at medium and high altitudes, they were using these missiles against these cheap, relatively cheap drones. But they also found that, that equally effective were their gun systems. The Gepards were particularly good at knocking those down. And indeed, I-Star drones over the battlefield have been uh, challenged by, by the Gepard system, which is a German. It's essentially a tank with two, with ra- two radar-guided guns extremely effective against low-flying aircraft and, of course, low-flying drones. So I think what the Ukrainians have done now is they've managed to put together very quickly anti-aircraft assets to produce a shield which 
has discomforted them, which is to say it's completely undermined the Russian strategic effort, so that now the Ukrainians claim they can shoot down, I think they do, they claim they shoot down 90%, let's say 70 to 80%, it doesn't matter. It makes Russian air attacks genuinely cost in effect, since Ukrainians obviously will concentrate their, their defences around uh, more valuable assets. And that's one reason we're not seeing that strategic campaign or, or seeing evidence of that strategic campaign as frequently as we did. The other reason, of course, is there's very good evidence that they're running out of missiles and that the uh, drones from Iran have simply run out. And there's also evidence, of course, they're running out of precision-guided missiles too, which is why what we see now in the strategic air campaign of drones and missiles, we see pulses of every month or so. We see an attempted saturation of the Ukrainian air defence system, which, as I say, most of which are shot down. There's very good, good reason to suppose that the the reason these happen every month is because that's how long it takes to gather material to fire this salvo. That's interesting. You've, you've kind of preempted my next question, really, um, which was about the value of these strategic strikes taking place in Ukraine. They obviously seem to be less precise than we're perhaps used to in the 21st century. Either that or civilians have just become a legitimate target for Russia. But what sort of impact do these strikes have when they're used? How influential have they been in aiding Russian forces or conversely degrading the Ukrainian war effort? I think it's difficult to say objectively because we don't hear the whole story. What we see are power cuts in Kiev and in other major cities in the south as well. Let's not ignore Odessa, Zaporizhia, Dnipro and, the other, and Kharkiv, the other major cities which have been subject to this kind of strike. So power cuts are very common there now. And I think many people were worried that, that this would become very, very, very damaging if there was a harsh winter. As yet, Ukraine has been lucky. This has not been a harsh winter. By that, I mean, if you have millions of people in somewhere like Kiev, you have three and a half, four million people in a city that's not far short the size of London, in minus 10 weather for two months, which is not uncommon in Eastern Europe. But that, this winter hasn't been like that, especially in North Ukraine. So that's mitigated the desired effect, strategic effect. And uh, what happens is, in the words of one Ukrainian friend of mine, we just hate them all the more, and uh, we are more ferociously determined than ever to kill as many of them as we can and win the war, which is the effect that anybody who's with any knowledge of history would understand would be the effect of a so-called strategic air campaign. But on material, that's to say, at that sort of lower level, there's no, no question at all, it's been extremely damaging, particularly the electrical infrastructure. But one of the things about the Ukrainian electrical infrastructure uh, is that it's, it's, first of all, there's a lot of redundancy in it. And secondly, it's actually quite old, so that it doesn't depend on highly sophisticated nodes to make it work. And repairs can be more easily made than perhaps they could be here. So it's been physically damaging but morally actually counterproductive. And by that, I mean, in terms of morale. Just to come back to this business of missiles, one indicator of the problems the Russians are having with precision missiles is that, as we would, the technical officers, the weapons technical officers of the Ukrainian armed forces examine every strike, and they will look forensically at the detritus of every missile attack. What they're finding is that missiles that were being fired, say, today, were made a month ago. So that would indicate that stocks, certainly of certain kinds of missiles, and I'm thinking particularly here of Calibre missiles, which are cruise missiles, or some of the, the higher-end ballistic missiles, Iskanders, 
are quite low because they're not coming from stocks made, let's say, in the 90s or early 2000s. Yeah, if you want to have a successful strategic bombing campaign, you need to make sure you've got plenty of weapon stockpiles, right? Perhaps just shows the uh, the weaknesses of the just-in-time supply chain in a military context. Yeah, they, 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 I mean, the Russians didn't intend to have a just-in-time supply system. They, they would rather hope that they had enough in the, in the bins, as the Americans call them. Uh, but it seems that they didn't. And, of course, there's another another element here, which we absolutely nobody knows, but people in defence intelligence know, and that is to what extent the Russians are holding back large stocks of precision missiles against any, any intervention by NATO. Now, if we move on or move away from the sort of strategic air campaign and, and return back to the tactical one, if air superiority hasn't entirely prevented these airstrikes um, within Ukraine, what effect has it had uh, to the battlefield? Can Russia's logistics problems or the supposedly vast amounts of tanks and soldiers being lost in Ukraine be attributed to a lack of air superiority? Yes, and this applies to both sides. So let's not uh, ignore or be quixotic about this. The kind of casualties that the Ukrainians uh, are dishing out, they're also sustained from the same thing, which is artillery. And to the extent that they have not got control of the air or an element of control of the air of the battlefield, or indeed the assets to exploit that in the aircraft, in any numbers because many of them have been destroyed. That certainly impacts on their ability to, to destroy Russian artillery. But of course they replace that by uh, or they offset that by using precision guided missile artillery. But again, you know, they've got they've got 30 or so high miles on them, maybe 80 or so other systems to cover a front of 700 kilometers. So they need to be extremely selective in their targeting. For that, but that's getting into the artillery piece. The answer to your question is yes, of course. A lack of control of the air and that sort of mutual denial denies the ability of both parties to interfere significantly on the ground, no question about it. Both sides do execute sorties daily, the, the Russians, a couple of hundred perhaps, strike fighter sorties, and uh, the Ukrainians, a couple of dozen, have very, very few aircraft left. But one also has to take into account the risks of those. You don't really want to risk, a, say, an Su-34, of which the Russians have lost a couple of dozen already, which are their high-end bombers on, a, on trying to destroy a 152mm ex-Soviet gun. But, uh, you know, there you really do have to look at risk-reward. So just, there's been 19, as of today, 19 Sukhoi-34s, which are their, their best bombers. They only strike aircraft that can fly at night. And you don't want to risk that they're designed for you know, precision strike. You don't want to risk those with a couple of guns because they'll be shot down. So there's been very little close air support, basically, from both sides in this conflict. And, and both sides have resorted to using artillery as their main, their main weapon in this fight. Yes, and the Russian use of that has been, let's be honest about it, very, very effective because they have, have many thousands of guns of all vintages. Uh, as to the Ukrainians, not that the Ukrainians are completely overwhelmed, just outnumbered. And what they're trying to do is offset the lack of numbers with precision, which they're beginning to do. But now I think, you know, that there, there comes a point where we're all finding in this over the Eastern Front, Kremlin, Mutin, areas like that, is a, is a dumb artillery just being, being used to indiscriminate, I mean, in a non-precision fashion. So, uh, yeah, the answer question is that what, where we would use air power predominantly, they use artillery both sides because they cannot exploit the air. Russian doctrine, is, the ground doctrine is very focused, has been since the 1940s, on artillery. 
We've begun to talk about the Ukrainian side now, so this is a good place to sort of shift focus to the Ukrainian Air Force. You've already mentioned that neither side has any degree of air superiority, really. So how well prepared was the Ukrainian Air Force for this conflict? I think they were as prepared as they could be. And let's not forget that they, for, for them, and any Ukrainian will tell you that the war did not really start. In fact, we've been fighting the war, they say, since 2014. So just to come back to the point, um, yeah, they were as prepared as they could be. They, they knew this was, this was coming. By that, I mean they had that tactical warning, you know, three or four days, perhaps a couple of weeks, and they, were, they, they got ready. And the uh, token of that was, uh, the essential token, is that they dispersed many of their assets, both, both air and ground-based air defense system, so that they were not vulnerable to, to Russian attack in any, in any kind of effective suppression or destruction of air defenses campaign that Russians might have attempted to, to execute, which they did. Trouble is for the Russian side is that many of the Ukrainian systems, as I say, had been dispersed, and they thought very carefully about how to how to use these systems. So the, the Ukrainians took lessons from their own experiences, took lessons from the Serbs, of course, other Iraqis, and others who fought larger air forces, and very effectively managed to set up tactical techniques which uh, confounded the Russians. So combinations of visual detection, radar detection. They wouldn't turn on the radars until they were sure of a, uh, reasonably sure of a contact. And then apparently another problem that really wasn't expected, but uh, Russian anti-radar missiles aren't designed or calibrated to attack Russian anti-aircraft systems. And my response to being told this was, well, surely they can recalibrate their anti-radar missiles, their sort of wild weasels or systems or harm equivalents. And I was told, well, actually, it's very difficult to do that. It's not so easy. It's not a question of turning a dial. Now, I think they've mastered that now. But in the early days, they weren't really prepared to deal with Ukrainian, Russian-made anti-aircraft systems, since they were not expecting or trained to do that. And as I've said, of course, that plays back again into the Russian Air Force's lack of preparation, at least in probably one even thought about. Why? Because until two, two days or even one day before the operation began, Russian ground crews, planners and pilots and other aircrew were simply not aware that this operation was going to take place. So they found themselves at a, at a loss on the Ukrainian side. Of course, they didn't. They were prepared and uh, they were able to disperse their systems. It seems incredibly ironic that the, the Russian weapons aren't capable of destroying Russian-made systems. All I'm thinking now is, you know, had Putin, had Russian military commanders read any books on the Falklands War in 1982, they would have seen the, the, the difficulty of launching a campaign without planning, without integrating and coordination between the three services. It's, it's, it's such, it seems like such primitive mistakes, but yet they continue to occur. Well, yeah, and we're not immune to that either, you know. Absolutely. Now, I want to move on to a, a, a perhaps a more recent development here, because we're hearing that the the Poles and the Dutch might be sending some F-16s, highly capable aircraft, to Ukraine. And Rishi Sunak has even floated the idea of the UK providing some of the Tranche 1 typhoons that were due to be retired in 2025, I believe. How much difference will these jets make? I gather that these aircraft are far more capable than anything that Russia can fly. But are they able to evade Russia's highly effective and multi-layered air defence system that they currently have deployed in Ukraine? Right, the answer to your last question is no, because the West does not deploy suppression of enemy air defence system. 
which requires a lot more than fast jets and guided missiles. It requires a whole suite of electronics, of ISTAR and other kinds of support. It requires a good degree of stealth to do it properly. It requires a massive amount of planning. It requires a large number of airframes to, to do that. So I think the idea of these things, and we'll come back to whether they're deployed in a second, would be, A, frankly, information propaganda to look good. I don't see any real effect. And B, perhaps to, to challenge to some degree uh, Russian fighters uh, over the uh, over the battlefield, trying to take some form of control of the air over that. What use you can make of it with the, with the ground saturated in uh, man pads and low-level air defence systems is another question. The only solution to that is to fly very, very, very low, and very, very, very fast, which creates problems for, for strike crews. Uh, and also, of course, wrecks your, your airframe uh, over a period of time and, uh, and reduces your range flying that, that level. So I don't see them being any, at this stage, unless they come in large numbers, which they won't in any, make any difference at all. Well, let's talk about Typhoon first. The fact is, that we don't have enough typhoons to give. We're talking about, as you said, tranche one typhoons. The tranche one typhoons are predominantly air superiority aircraft with fighters. They do have some strike capability, but it's not sort of high-end strike capability, things like Storm Shadow, um, Pegway, Brimstone, all those other things. They can be deployed with those, I suppose, um, with some modification, but they're not designed to do that. They're air-to-air fighters. So that's the first. Secondly, we haven't got any to give. There may be 20 in storage, according to the Chief of the Air Staff. How many of those are fit to send and go into combat is a massive question. So that's the first question. Maybe let's say generously we've got 10 of those 20 in storage that we can give. We certainly can't give any in service since the Royal Air Force is strapped already with commitments. So of those 10 then, that we send, we will need to send uh, to train uh, air crew. That's not necessarily difficult, but any idea that you can do that in five weeks and hope to have a, an integrated system working properly as it is for the birds, particularly in a denied air environment. And finally, most importantly, the typhoon has a huge logistical footprint that uh, not only does, does is it an exquisite piece of gear which requires highly skilled engineers and ground crews, but also a, a, a long logistical chain and costly logistical chain. And finally, Ukraine does not have the runways at the moment or the airfields to deploy these in any numbers. For example, just at the very basic mechanical level, the Typhoon has an underslung intake and that requires certain kinds of runway, I understand, which the Ukrainians can't, do not have. And finally, concerning air bases, air basing for any of the platforms they get except the Britain, uh, they will need to defend those far more assiduously as key strategic assets, which they would be, than they do now. And that will withdraw air, def air defence systems. I'm thinking of Patriots and NASAMs. They can't afford to lose these airfields, all these aircraft. And imagine the propaganda and damage of that from other more significant targets. So the, the gain-loss balance for something like Typhoon or very few F-16s, it does not work. And the Ukrainians should focus right now on ground-based air defence systems. The resources that would go into the F-16 or, or Typhoon or Rafale for that matter would be far better employed in going to uh, their ground-based air defence assets, which they've used very successfully and very effectively. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is a strategic aspect here, because just a week after Sunak made that announcement, Wallace, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, said, well, actually, 
almost echoing what, what uh, many of us had said just after Rishi Sunak made his somewhat rash promise or rash indication that really we don't have these and, and they're not that important anyway. So they're not going, right? that's the answer. So the next question is, well, what is going? Assuming that the Ukrainians still want their shiny jets, which are understandably, okay, as, as an iconic symbol. So, so what, what would rationally be sent? Okay, I think there are two candidates here. The first is the F-16. Why? Because the numbers exist in Europe and the US in storage and on operations. And in the longer term, there is no question Ukraine is, notwithstanding all I've said, entirely right in demanding these. They're wrong in demanding them now or soon. Because Ukraine is going to have to deter future attacks with the chronic threat situation they have whilst the current regime in Russia exists. So in other words, they need to look far into the future and they will need an air force. And that air force should probably be armed either with high-end F-16s, Ds or Es, some of which are coming available over the next few years, in the US and other, and other allies which will also require a long logistical tail and very, very great deal of maintenance. There's a cost element to that, which isn't relevant now, but maybe in two or three years. Or I would suggest far, far, far better for them, more suitable would be the Saab Jazz 39 Gripen E, uh, the latest model C for that matter, which the Swedes now have. And the Swedes are replacing those over the next couple of years. And what better place for the 100 and odd of them to go than Ukraine? But why? Because they don't have a large logistical imprint. They can be operated with a ground crew of six from a highway with one highly trained engineer in charge because Sweden has an approach to air defence which is very focused on dispersal. does not require exquisite airfields like Coningsby, Marham, Lossy or uh, indeed any, any NATO airfield. They require a good highway and uh, that's by far the best solution for, for the Ukrainians that also operate far better and more efficiently at very low levels. They are specifically designed, both as fighters and strike aircraft, to, to fight Russia. And they are the best uh, solution for Ukraine. And I suspect that would be the airframe they would go for. But let nobody assume that this is going to have any effect in the next three months, six months or a year. It won't. This is going forward. And that's why the Ukrainians are wise to start this process now. Thanks for clearing that up, Frank. That was, that was really useful, really informative there. Perhaps just more of a political statement by Rishi Sunak then rather than anything of any strategic value. Yeah, and, and look, just to speak for the defence for 30 seconds, you can see why Sunak made that statement. So operation, it doesn't work, but it all, that almost doesn't matter. In much the same way as the British were the first to put Western main battle tanks on the table with the gift of 14 Challenger tanks. Very effective, somewhat ageing, but no doubt, and, and no question at all, very effective tanks. And the function of that will not be tactical. The function of that, of course, is, is political. We've done it, now you can. And I suspect that was the, the underlying reason why Sunak undertook, or at least to, to consider the tranche one typhoons. It was to set a marker. And I think in that sense, yes, it was clever. So it was this political strategic move, but in no way operationally significant. So perhaps I should have caveated that at the outset. I think that's fair to say. Given that we're talking about what's in the news then, I can't let you go without asking whether there have been any balloons over Ukraine. What do you make of this strange occurrence that we're seeing in the news at the minute? Yeah, we've heard some 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 rumours of balloons over over Ukraine and uh, probably Russian surveillance ones. But look, you're referring, of course, to the Chinese balloons over the Americas. Yeah, well, Harry, you know, you're a World War One scholar. You know that uh, balloons have a long and very noble history in the ice star domain. In the First World War, they're absolutely critical in being eyes in the sky for the artillery to the extent that the manned air couldn't do it. But constantly over the Western Front, 
and indeed Gallipoli and elsewhere, balloons were used to direct gunfire. And gunfire in Ukraine, just as now, were the main killer. So at that tactical level, the balloons have a, have a strong history. We could go in as well into the barrage balloons in the air defence role in the Second World War, unsung heroes in some ways, those crews. But for reconnaissance, again, that sort of more strategic reconnaissance, the Americans operated a system we now know called Moby Dick for 20 or 30 years during the Cold War, floating similar balloons to the ones the Chinese have allegedly been, or have been using against the US. War balloons were effective reconnaissance assets. And we're hearing today, actually, that the Chinese are accusing the Americans of doing much the same way as Xinjiang and Tibet. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if they were. And they do have advantages over satellites. They've got a longer persistence. The payloads can be very large, as we've seen with this uh, recent Chinese balloon shot down over the Carolinas. Um, and they do have an element of control. And of course, they sit in the atmosphere too, which allows certain massive uh, assets to be used, you know, to um, signature intelligence, particularly important, I think, over ballistic missile fields where this balloon is clearly directed. I enjoyed that little aside there, Frank. Thank you very much. But to, to conclude and to try and bring it back to the war in Ukraine, what lessons should we be learning from this conflict in, in relation to air power? Either Lessons either about Russia as a potential adversary or about the nature of air campaigns in the 21st century. Right, two lessons there. So first, and really we should have learned this by now, from Kosovo to a lesser extent Iraq, but through air power since 1945, Ground-based air defence systems are the main threat to aircraft, be they fighters, strike aircraft, reconnaissance aircraft, fuelers, or anything else. And connected to that, and here's a lesson for the West, and particularly for Europe, and we had this issue arise front and centre in Libya, of all places, which had a a far more primitive, but not necessarily primitive, air defence system that needed to be suppressed. And who did that suppression? The US. So Europe has to step up with suppression and destruction of any air defence capabilities. Those are developing. We're getting uh, certain assets through now for the Royal Air Force. We've obviously got Storm Shadow. We've got F-35s, which are an overloaded, of course, uh, very small fleet. We have the Typhoon Tranche 3, which are very capable. Uh, We've got Spearfish 3 missiles coming in. But the problem is cohering those as well with good I-star, with, with a, a good uh, large stocks of ammunition, with extensive training, red flag type exercises, which of course take place in Nevada every year. But since Libya, European capabilities in suppression of any air defences have been minimal. And we should take this opportunity over the next few years to put that right and internalise that air power now is as much about ground-based air defence systems as it ever was, right? And that the shiny jets are one component, but what's going to do the damage, as it has really since 1944, are the ground-based air defence systems. And that requires all air forces, especially European air forces, to begin focusing once again on their suppression. And that's the main lesson out of this, I think. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank. Thanks for coming on the show. I've enjoyed that immensely. Me too, Harry. Thank you very much indeed. And any time, as they say. Thanks to Frank for giving us a wonderful description of how air power has featured in this conflict so far. 
The only thing left to say is that we wish Ukraine and the Ukrainian people all the best in whatever the future holds for them.